Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have three new movies to review for you. Two are brand new. In other words, they premiered on June 25th and they happen to premiere on some streaming platforms. And the other one is a film that came out last weekend in theaters that I did not get to review until now. So I'm going to start off my first review with The Ice Road. This is the latest movie uh, starring Liam Neeson uh, playing an ice road trucker like the ones you see on that popular A&E reality show. But... This is a fictional story, but, and I'm not exactly sure, you know, not having driven a truck over a road that's made out of ice myself and not having traveled to places up north like North Dakota or Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm not sure how accurate this film is, but it's a thrill to watch. And it's a movie about a remote diamond mine in in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Canada, that collapses. And when it collapses, a big rig ice road driver must lead an impossible rescue mission over a frozen ocean to save the trapped miners. And the one big rig ice truck driver in question here is a man by the name of Mike McCann, who's played in this movie by Liam Neeson. And Liam Neeson in the 80s and 90s used to be the go-to guy when it came to highbrow films. And over the last 15 to 20 years, he's made a name for himself starring in action movies. And his best action movie over the last 10 or 15 years has been Taken. And people who don't know Liam Neeson's name definitely know him if you mention the name... the, the name of the movie taken and you tell them about how he told his daughter to hide under the bed. And then he said to him, to her over the cell phone, now they're going to take you. That's when, yeah, people know exactly who Liam Neeson is. And these are the kinds of people who haven't seen Schindler's list or before and after, or any of the movies that Liam Neeson did and received critical praise for in the nineties. And that's okay. And Liam Neeson is making a good name for himself being a bit more of this Charles Bronson action star. But I do think that Ice Road works a lot better for him as an action star, as an intelligent action star, I might add, than other movies he's done like the Taken sequels or The Commuter or any of those other movies. But in this movie, he plays a guy by the name of Mike McCann, who is a truck driver in North Dakota. And because it's Liam Neeson and because we all know what his accent sounds like, he plays an Irishman who's a trucker. It would have been a little bit nice to know how he managed to immigrate from Ireland to the United States and settle in North or South Dakota and become a trucker, but it doesn't really matter. What's cool is that he kept his Irish accent and he doesn't try to hide being Irish in this film. And I think that actually works out for him. So he in this movie has a brother whose name is Gertie, who is 
mentally handicapped, presumably because of some war injuries. And he, um, he looks out for his brother Gertie and actually gets fired from his first job for punching another trucker for referring to his brother as a retard. And both brothers are fired for that incident for some reason when it really should have been uh, Mike McCann himself who should have been fired. But eventually he receives an alert for a need for ice road truckers in Winnipeg and having nothing to lose, he decides to apply. And a, a man by the name of Jim Goldenrod, who's played by Lawrence Fishburne, who is another ice road trucker, agrees to lead a dangerous rescue mission to help deliver three wellheads to the mine. And what is a wellhead? A wellhead is a component at the surface of an oil or gas well that provides the structural and pressure-containing interface for the drilling and production equipment. So these wellheads will eventually get these miners out of this um, collapsed mine. And there are, as I said, 26 miners that are still in there. I think some managed to escape and others died from the collapse. But their mission on this ice road truck um, convoy is to get these miners out of the mine and getting these wellheads installed and getting the miners out is the easy part. The hard part is the ice road over which they have to drive. And by ice road, for those of you who are not familiar with ice road truckers, what I mean is a man-made, a path that is actually not gravel and and not ice over gravel, but it's actually over a frozen lake or a sea. And I'm not exactly sure what body of water it's over, but I'm pretty sure that Manitoba has as many lakes, if not more lakes than Minnesota. And that's where the thrill of this mission comes to be because an 18 wheeler weighs about 26 tons on the liberal side. And there are three of them that they need to get to Manitoba. So it is a very thrilling movie. And in fact, it it shows that ice road trucking is not for the faint of heart. And it also dispels some particular stereotypes about ice road truckers, particularly in the Northern part of the United States, the Pacific North, as well as those in Canada. And one of the standout actors in this film, besides Liam Neeson, is a young woman who's actually the daughter of the guy by the name of Goldenrod. Goldenrod, again, is played by Lawrence Fishburne. And his daughter, whose name is Tantu, very interesting name right there, probably some Native American ancestry, is played by Amber Midthunter. And Amber Midthunter is an actress I have not seen before. She's only 24 years old. She was probably 22 or 23 when this movie came out. The only movie in that I've seen with her in it is one called Hell or High Water, which was a pretty good movie that came out in 2016. I just don't remember her specifically in that film. But I will probably remember her after... Ice Road Truckers. And there, of, of course, the the main antagonist in this film is the ice itself because it shows how 
unforgiving nature, particularly nature in the frozen north of North America, can be. But I think that the human antagonist in this film, in fact, I know that the human antagonist in this film is a guy by the name of Lampard, who's from the Winnipeg area, who recruits Liam Neeson's character and Lawrence Fishburne's character to drive these um, wellheads to this collapsed mine shaft. And he's played by Holt McCallany. And he actually is a really good bad guy, particularly because I hated this film when I saw him, particularly where he shows his racist side when he refers to Amber Midthunder's character as those people, and you know exactly what he's talking about. If he lived in a city, any city in the United States, including either, you know, suburban or urban Winnipeg or Bismarck, North Dakota, he wouldn't get anywhere with his racism. But I think that when, when you live in such a remote area, you can get away with it. And you could pretty much say whatever you want to whomever you want. A lot of people don't, but some people do. And I think that Hold McCallany's character certainly reflects that kind of questionable freedom of some people who live in remote areas. But that's about all as political as I'm going to get. But overall, I was a little wary of this film considering that I've seen Liam Neeson in several action films over the last 15 years. The only one that's really hit, and by hit I mean it worked well as a story, was Taken. But the other ones I've seen have tried to derive from the Taken formula since it uh, worked the first time. And I do think that to the movie The Ice Road's credit, it actually had Liam Neeson do a little bit more than just avenge the kidnapping or death of a relative. We've seen that so many times over the last 15 years. This time he does something really original, and you are rooting for him because he's playing a different kind of character. He's still playing the same kind of stoic action star that Charles Bronson uh, famously played in the 70s and 80s, but in this movie it fits him very well. Plus, he has some very funny lines for a guy who's not particularly known for funny lines, even in some of his uh, best movies. But The Ice Road is a movie that I really enjoyed. It was good for what it was. It was an excellent action film. I don't know about the scientific or historical accuracy of what these Ice Road truckers go through during this movie, but... I'm just going to put my lack of experience or expertise about Ice Road Truckers out there because I think as an action film and as a movie that really told the story, it did a good job. And Liam Neeson, Lawrence Fishburne, and Amber Midthunder most especially had the standout roles in this movie. So The Ice Road gets my rating of a knockout, but I do have to say one thing. The actor who plays Liam Neeson's character's brother is played by an actor named Marcus Thomas, who I'm pretty sure is not mentally handicapped. And it does irk me when people who are not mentally handicapped play people who are mentally handicapped. And I'm talking about, for example, 
Sean Penn and I Am Sam or Cuba Gooding Jr. in radio. I, I think it's a bit pretentious. Actually, it's very pretentious when somebody who's not mentally handicapped and who is of sound mind plays somebody who doesn't. So I couldn't quite get behind Marcus Thomas's performance as Gertie. But then again, he plays somebody who's been injured as opposed to somebody who was born mentally handicapped. So I guess it would make a pass there. But again, I'm not taking away Marcus Thomas's performance from my enjoyment of the movie, The Ice Road. I think it was a very solid action film. It certainly had some very thrilling moments. And the three actors I mentioned, Liam Neeson, Lawrence Fishburne, and Amber Midthunder, not to mention Holt McCallany, turned in some very good performances, which is why I am highly recommending The Ice Road. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is False Positive. This is a Hulu original movie, and it is rated TVMA, or at least it was when I saw it on Hulu. I don't know if that makes it eligible for Academy Award consideration. I really don't know, because the line between... um theatrically released movies and made-for-TV movies has been blurred, particularly ever since Netflix came to um, instant streaming. And there's nothing particularly wrong with that. My only issue with it is I don't really know exactly about Oscar eligibility, but I can assure you that Oscar eligible or not, False Positive will probably not be nominated for anything. It's a weird movie, but... I think it's a movie that tries to tackle way too many plot twists and topics. Let me explain what it's about. False positive uh, details a, a woman by the name of Lucy, who's played by Ilana Glazer. And I'll explain to you what you might have seen Ilana Glazer in, uh, in addition to this movie. And she and her husband, Adrian, who's played by Justin Thoreau, are struggling to have a baby and Lucy sets out to, um, get a child or at least, you know, have one, uh, in vitro fertilization with the help of a charismatic doctor by the name of Dr. Hindle, who is played by Pierce Brosnan. So we have some very good casting here already. Plus Ilana Glazer in this movie, I'll explain to you who she is, just very briefly. Ilana Glazer is probably best known for being in the Comedy Central series Broad City, which aired on Comedy Central from 2014 to 2019. And she's been in a couple of movies here and there. She was a supporting actress in the movie Rough Night, starring Scarlett Johansson, Jillian Bell, Kate McKinnon, and other uh, actresses, uh, Zoe Kravitz too. I can't forget her, but this is her first time starring in a movie. And truth be told, I have not seen any episodes of broad city, but 
I do know who Alana Glazer is, as in I, I know her image. In this movie, she looks dramatically different from how she did in Broad City. For one thing, in Broad City, she has curly hair. In this movie, she has straight hair. And I wouldn't have guessed that there would have been any kind of uh, difference there. But yeah, the, the difference between the two appearances is remarkable. She looks like an entirely different person. But anyway... I did explain to you that she visits a charismatic uh, gynecologist who um, gives her in vitro fertilization so that she is positively uh, pregnant. But as this movie's title, False Positive, implies, she sets out to uncover the unsettling truth about her fertility doctor. And when she uh, walks into the doctor's office, she's met by such um, nurses as Dawn, who's played by Gretchen Mole, an actress we haven't seen for quite some time, and another one named Rita, who's played by Sabina Gadecki. And they're a little bit too cheerful. I do think that when you have this kind of couple here who will do anything to have a baby on their own, I think you'll go to any kind of clinic. And this clinic is certainly very clean, but the way that the nurses acted was in the very beginning strange to me, almost like they were Stepford wives. But Pierce Brosnan as Dr. Hindle is very good at being charismatic without frightening anyone away as, as far as I know. And the movie started out pretty good, seeing these this couple struggle with their infer, uh, infertility, and then they have that a moment of bliss when the in vitro fertilization by Pierce Brosnan's character works. But the movie begins to sort of fly off the deep end when you don't begin to trust the antagonist, the uh, woman, Lucy, who is having the baby. And there's really nothing wrong with an unreliable narrator. My problem is not with the unreliable protagonist. After all, she's dealing with hormones and also the fact that she has three um, fetuses in her stomach and the doctor gives her the bad news that she has to get, get rid of one of them or else risk the lives of all three of them. And that's a very hard choice to make. I'm not sure in terms of medical or scientific accuracy how accurate it is if, if people have to make this kind of choice if they're having two or more children. But I went along with it for this movie. The problem is that Lucy begins to dream and hallucinate about very intriguing plot twist. The problem is that there's just way too many of them. And also she's in this together with her husband, Adrian, who's played by Justin Thoreau, who is not an A-lister. He's, he's never been one. He used to be married to an A-lister, Jennifer Aniston, and he's had strong supporting performances in movies like Mulholland Drive and Zoolander and others. But, um, he's still a very good actor. My problem with him in this movie was I feel like he should not have been 
the twist of him being the antagonist, and that is a bit of a twist there, I'm not going to tell you exactly how, just doesn't really fit with his persona in the first part of the movie. At, in the first part, he's in it with Lucy to the very end. He's, tr- he's trying with her to get her pregnant. But then in the second half of the movie, he becomes uncharacteristically smug. And he also appears in scenes where you wouldn't expect a husband to appear. For instance, when Lucy has her baby shower, he's there with her. Why is a husband at a baby shower? I don't exactly know. If I get married and I get my wife pregnant, she's going to have a baby shower. I'm not going to be there. Why? Because baby showers are not for husbands. I'd be happy to set the chairs up, but I wouldn't stick around. I would rather just go down to a bar, if anything. But (laughs) otherwise, I think I would be a very supportive husband. But I'm just, of course, speculating here. But again, I think that the movie was veering towards that Rosemary's Baby type angle where the woman is vulnerable because she's having a child and the people around her from her husband to her doctors to her neighbors are acting strangely. And I do think that not only Rosemary's Baby, but several other stories, uh, particularly those written by Ira Levin, who not only wrote the book upon which the movie, the Roman Polanski film Rosemary's Baby was based. He also wrote the book upon which the Stepford Wives was based. And while the two were different in tone, they did have one constant. And that constant was that husbands will sell their wives out at any cost, or at least the ones that Ira Levin writes. And this movie is an original uh, film. It's not based on a book. In fact, Ilana Glazer co-wrote the screenplay and the story along with director John Lee. But I did feel like in trying to avert their way from the twist ending of Rosemary's Baby, which ended in a bit of a supernatural, actually very much in a supernatural type of way, they just gave hint after hint after hint of a convincing plot twist. But in the end, there were eight plot twists that they introduced or hinted at that went nowhere. And once the one plot twist at the end came to be, one, it felt cheap compared to the other eight plot twists they introduced. And B, if the twist of the movie is that there's going to be one twist as opposed to eight, That just feels really cheap. So I feel like False Positive had a really good start, but there were certain plot elements that just did not work. And the last act of the film was just bizarre, especially the very last scene that reminded me less of Rosemary's Baby, but unfortunately more of the movie Eraserhead, which is also a very surreal and dark movie about a reluctant parent who's dealing with his fears of having a child and how that child will eventually turn out. I liked Eraserhead a lot more because it just embraced 
being weird. Plus it was overall a unique and original movie that no one had ever seen before. False positive is not in the same league as Eraserhead or Rosemary's Baby, which is why I give it my rating of a strikeout. The reason I'm not giving it a flunk out is because I think overall the acting was good. I think Ilana Glazer did a really good job in her role. I also really liked Pierce Brosnan. Whether you liked him or hated him in this movie, he certainly walked a really good line being charismatic without being creepy and being villainous without without hinting upon that. His charisma is his weapon that he uses very well. I thought Justin Thoreau was good up until the point where you realize that his character is not particularly well-developed. I think that Gretchen Mole and Sabina Gadecki are a bit uh, cartoonish, particularly towards the last uh, uh, third of the movie. And honestly, False Positive started out pretty good, but I think the last third of the movie was when it really fell apart. But I do think that the set design was good. The acting amongst the cast was also very good. But the the last third of it was when it really went off the rails. And once it went off the rails, it didn't quite recover as a film or as a story. I'm sorry to say. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. This is the movie I was telling you about that premiered in theaters on June 18th, 2021, but I did not actually get to review it until now. And now that I've seen it, it's really not a lot to tell you about, particularly because it is the sequel to a movie called The Hitman's Bodyguard, which also star which also like this movie starred Ryan Reynolds, Samuel L. Jackson, and Salma Hayek. And even though it had a good cast to it, I don't really remember all that much about The Hitman's Bodyguard. So, I do remember some funny lines that Samuel L. Jackson spoke, and surprisingly, all the lines I remember Samuel L. Jackson speaking were clean. He didn't say the F word once in these funny lines, which goes to show you that even though Samuel L. Jackson is well known for his colorful language, he doesn't always have to swear to be funny. And I think this is something that the screenwriters of this movie forgot. In in other words, that a movie doesn't have to be necessarily... Uh, vulgar to be funny or edgy. But let me just give you a synopsis about what this movie, The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, what the plot is. So we're reintroduced to the bodyguard Michael Bryce, who's played by Ryan Reynolds, just like in the original film. But in this film, he plays somebody who has lost his bodyguard license and That's kind of interesting because I didn't know you had to have a license to be a bodyguard. Plus, 
if you lost your license to be a bodyguard, that probably means you can't be a bodyguard for Britney Spears or some head of state, but couldn't you be a bodyguard for somebody in the black market, like, um, a mafia godfather or hell, a hitman or something. Either way, because Ryan Reynolds' character has lost his bodyguard license, he is down and out about it, and he decides to take a vacation, only to find that he is reluctantly pulled into another bodyguard scenario as he tries to save his now friend and assassin Darius Kincaid as they try to save Darius's wife, Sonia, who's played by Salma Hayek. And I said a few weeks ago when I was introducing this movie that it, the Hitman's Bodyguard had Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson. The new people who are in this movie, the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, are Morgan Freeman, Antonio Banderas, and Salma Hayek. I was right about Morgan Freeman and Antonio Banderas. They were not in the the original Hitman's Bodyguard, but Salma Hayek was. But it goes to show you how forgettable the original Hitman's Bodyguard was because I don't remember Salma Hayek in that movie. But in this movie, she certainly has a larger role. I think in the Hitman's Bodyguard, the original one from 2017, she probably made something a little bit more like a cameo, even though she was given fourth billing in that movie. But here, she is much more prominent. And it's not just Salma Hayek's character and Samuel L. Jackson's character that Ryan Reynolds' character is trying to save. It turns out there is a Greek terrorist by the name of Aristotle Papadopoulos, uh, who's played by Antonio Banderas. There are two things that are funny about this. First of all, Antonio Banderas is not Greek. He's Spanish. Secondly, he doesn't try to hide his Spanish accent. And Antonio Banderas has a great speaking voice. I'll give him that. So the third thing is he is given probably one of the most stereotypical Greek names that you could give a fictional character. You know, the first name Aristotle, kind of like Aristotle Aristotle Onassis. And then you have the last name Papadopoulos, which is, again, it's a stereotypical Greek name just because it's so long. Although I do know some people of Greek descent who have this last name. The issue is that it's a very, very lampoonish uh, Greek name when you put it together with Aristotle. He, his name might as well be Zeus Papa Christopoulos, you know, or something like that. But I didn't really buy Antonio Banderas in this movie as a villain, particularly because his Spanish accent distracted me from the fact that he was supposed to be Greek. If you're gonna ha- if you're gonna have a character who is g- Greek, you might as well have the person who's playing him be Greek. But then again, it's probably another reason to get Antonio Banderas's name on the marquee. And I actually did think that the scenes between him and Salma Hayek were gold. And the primary reason for that is because Antonio Banderas and Salma Hayek have acted in several other movies before this one, most of which were directed by Robert Rodriguez. There was Desperado, which had one of the sexiest sex scenes between um, 
two actors that I've ever seen. They were also together in Once Upon a Time in Mexico, in the first Spy Kids movie, maybe others. They were uh, voice actors in the Puss in Boots movie, and there are certainly some other roles in which they starred together. So the two of them have very natural on-screen chemistry together. The problem with this movie was just about everything else. And while Salma Hayek was good in scenes with Antonio Banderas, she wasn't particularly good in scenes with anyone else. I did not buy her and Samuel L. Jackson as a married couple. I didn't think the scenes between her and Ryan Reynolds clicked particularly well. And one of the reasons that they didn't is because the screenwriters of this movie, who were um, Tom O'Connor, Brandon Murphy, and Philip Murphy, had her swearing every sentence. And I would probably say that the the only uh, writer who's coming back from the original Hitman's Bodyguard movie here is Tom O'Connor. But the other two um, writers of the screenplay, presumably who are brothers, just peppered the dialogue of Salma Hayek and Samuel L. Jackson with more swear words than necessary. And I'm no prude when it comes to swear words, but when you have a character say the F word in a film, it's necessary for that F word to pack a punch, you know, to really shock people. And I do think that some less than experienced screenwriters kind of forget that fact. And they think that the more swear words you add to a character's dialogue, the edgier the movie will be. And instead, the swearing, particularly by Salma Hayek, became less edgy and more redundant. And also, I didn't think it was funny when Salma Hayek swore at all. And there's one point where she refers to her breasts, and she refers to them as boobs, which is one of the worst names you could give a woman's breasts. There are more explicit terms for a woman's breast women's breasts. And I'm not going to get into those because of FCC regulations. But what I will say is the word boob isn't funny for one thing. And secondly, Salma Hayek isn't funny when she refers to her, her breasts either. That's all I'm going to say about it. But again, there are bullets flying all over the place here. It's not just the dialogue, but everything here felt redundant. Salma Hayek swearing, which she actually does more than Samuel L. Jackson. And the irony about that is not capitalized upon anywhere in the movie. I was really tired of Ryan Reynolds being as smug as he was. And that seems to be his kind of go-to persona, which gets really tiresome when he's not playing Deadpool. And even when he's playing Deadpool, it can get a little old too. But in his other movies, I don't know why people are still buying into that persona. It's really not funny. And also, the violence in this film is very, very cartoonish and monumentally unrealistic. For example, not only are bullets flying all over the place so that bullets, in addition to Salma Hayek swearing, become redundant, but also there's a scene where Ryan Reynolds is driving. He gets into a car crash. Because he's not wearing his seatbelt, he catapults out the windshield onto the pavement. He gets up, brushes himself off and says, I'm okay, which is already unrealistic. And then he gets hit by a car driven by some of the hitmen who are after him. And he falls into the 
uh, ocean uh, off the dock where he is. And somehow he does not come out of the situation with a scratch on him or any more scratches than he previously had. In reality, one of those, he would have either broken one of his limbs if he were lucky or probably more realistically, at least after getting hit by the second car, he would have been paralyzed. So this movie has about as cartoonish violence as the Elmer Fudd Daffy Duck cartoons where Daffy Duck accidentally shoots himself in the face with Elmer Fudd's gun. It, it just felt like a Looney Tunes cartoon to me, and it really shouldn't have been. It should have been a tad bit more mature than that. But you'll also notice that I referenced four out of the five main actors. I did not reference Morgan Freeman in this movie. Morgan Freeman is okay, but again, I think he's kind of used in this film as a punchline. Ryan Reynolds refers to his smooth, deep voice the same way that the character Ted did in the movie uh, Ted 2. So that's been done before. Also, it's revealed that Ryan Reynolds calls Morgan Freeman Papa, implying that Morgan Freeman is his father. And Samuel L. Jackson is surprised that Ryan Reynolds, surprise, surprise, has a black father, despite not being African-American himself. And again, that that's kind of way too obvious. And then Ryan Reynolds reveals that Morgan Freeman is not his biological father, but his stepfather. So why are you calling your stepfather papa or, or father or something that you would call your biological father? Never explained. And there is a plot twist involving who's a, an antagonist versus who's a protagonist. And when that character reveals that he or she is an antagonist and is against Ryan Reynolds from the start, it's not particularly surprising. And once it's revealed, it doesn't really go anywhere. So The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard might be a good film for somebody who's looking for just a fly-by-night action movie. But for me, considering the really talented cast that's involved here, it should have been a lot better than it was. The Hitman's Bodyguard was bad, but it was forgettable. It was a forgettable type of bad. I think The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard is less forgettable because of the cast, but it's still bad nonetheless. The dialogue doesn't work. The story is all over the place. The violence becomes redundant. The swearing becomes redundant. And the cast just doesn't work well together, with the exception of Salma Hayek and Antonio Banderas. But that's only because they've worked together before, and they know how to create that sort of sexual tension that drives a story. But unfortunately, in this case, there's no story to drive, which is why the hitman's wife's bodyguard gets my rating of a flunk out. This is just not taking great actors and bringing the best out of them. It's just taking great actors and making cartoons out of them. And it would be great if it were a movie that had cartoons in it, but unfortunately, it's not lampoonish in the good way. It's just not a particularly good film, and it's not a particularly memorable film, and that's really unfortunate given the talent behind it, and for that matter, in front of it.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into movies that are coming out next. And I'm going to start with movies that are in theaters because considering this is July 4th weekend, there should be, and I do emphasize should be, a big movie coming out for the weekend of July 2nd through July 4th, 2021. However, there aren't really any uh, big films, but I'll tell you what's coming out. The biggest film to come out for the July 4th weekend, surprisingly, is not a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. I am still waiting for the Black Widow movie with Scarlett Johansson to come out, but that is delayed for now. I can't tell you yet when that's coming out, but it would have been perfect to have had that film come out for the July 4th weekend. Instead, we have another sequel to a movie that is not great, and the movie is The Boss Baby Family Business. This movie is not only coming out in theaters, but it is also going to be streamed on Peacock, which is a streaming service to which I do not have a membership, but let me tell you what The Boss Baby Family Business is about. The Templeton brothers have become adults and drifted away from each other, but a new boss baby with a cutting-edge approach is about to bring them together again and inspire a new family business. So the original boss baby, which came out in 2017, had Alec Baldwin as the voice of the Templeton baby, and here he is reprising his role as that Templeton baby, except he grows up. And some other voice actors in the movie include James Marsden, Amy Sedaris, and Ariana Greenblatt. Now, I'm not sure if Steve Buscemi is reprising his role in the previous film. I don't exactly know. But, yeah, there are a number of all-star voices, uh, voice talents that are in this movie, including, uh, in addition to the ones I just mentioned, um... Eva Longoria, Jimmy Kimmel, Lisa Kudrow, Jeff Goldblum as the voice of a doctor. Kind of interesting. And that seems to be about it. This is a movie I will see because I've seen the original one. I really did not like Boss Baby. But it was a box office hit. Particularly because in 2017, it came out months after we had a Boss Baby president. And Alec Baldwin happened to to play that baby president on Saturday Night Live from 2016 to 2020, yeah, 2020. I don't think he played him once in 2021, but <laughs> it was kind of true to life there. I think people <laughs> went went there, um, <laughs> went to the movies to see the boss baby as a kind of catharsis, but it overall wasn't a good animated film, but it was nominated I think undeservingly for best animated feature. Thank God it didn't win. But The Boss Baby Family Business is a movie that I will see and I will review it for you on next week's show. Another movie that's coming out in um, theaters, but it's not coming out in particularly wide release, I don't think, is a movie that's called Zola. This is a movie about a stripper whose name is Zola who embarks on a wild road trip to Florida this movie has a really good cast. It has Taylor Page, uh, Riley Keough, the latter of whom is Elvis's granddaughter. And Taylor Page is a beautiful uh, young actress who has 
been in such movies as Boogie, which is the movie about a Chinese American um, high schooler who is who has his sights on either a college scholarship or the NBA. That was directed and written by Eddie Huang, who created the series Fresh Off the Boat, as well as he's done some other movies and TV shows. But that's what I remember the actress Taylor Page from the most. In the the movie Zola, she actually plays the titular character. She was also in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which was an excellent film from last year that I significantly enjoyed. So I would have thought that Riley Keough would have played the role of Zola, but Riley Keough is an actress who is very impressive. She just really hasn't been in a great movie, I think, other than Mad Max Fury Road. She was in a couple of films like, for example, American Honey and another film that I saw right before the pandemic hit, which was called The Lodge. Both of those movies were evidently flawed, especially The Lodge. The Lodge is one of the worst movies to come out in 2020. But Riley Keeloff is a good actress, and who knows, she might shine in this one. But Zola is a film that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And if you were tired of the movies, uh, the, the Purge movies, well, I have something to tell you. There's another one coming out this weekend. This one is called The Forever Purge. This is a movie um, that's set, I guess, in the distant future where all the rules are broken as a sect of lawless marauders decides that the annual purge does not stop at daybreak and instead should never end. It was only a matter of time that they were going to make one of these movies, but this is a movie I will see. I'm not going to say I'm going to enjoy it, but... I'll let you know what I think on uh, on next week's show if I do see it. The movie doesn't star anybody that I know. There only a couple of people that I know. The star of the movie is Ana de la Riguera, who I'm not familiar with. Tena Huerta. Again, you got some good uh, Latino actors in there. Josh Lucas, who I do know. And he was set up about 15 years ago to be the next leading man. And th- that didn't quite happen, but I do think... Josh Lucas is a good actor. And it also stars Cassidy Freeman. So I'll give this movie a chance, but I doubt that I'm going to like it, especially considering that the the Purge films are what they are. They're just, you know, horror porn. That That's pretty much all they are. But anyway, there's another um, documentary that's coming out in theaters, and it could be coming out in streaming too. Actually confirmed... It is not only one that's going to be released in theaters, it's a Hulu original. The name of the documentary is Summer of Soul, parentheses, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, end parentheses. So this is a feature documentary about the legendary 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival, which celebrated African-American music and culture and promoted black pride and unity. To give you an idea of who uh, performed in this uh, Summer of Soul Festival in Harlem in 1969, a lot of who's who of soul music of the late 60s. Sly and the Family Stone was there in addition to Woodstock. Nina Simone performed. B.B. King. A lot of really great acts. Um, I don't know if this happened before or after Woodstock, but I am very curious to know. 
But when you hear about big concerts in 1969, you hear about two big ones. The first one, obviously, is Woodstock. That was probably the mother of them. And the second one was the Altamont Freeway concert, which the Rolling Stones headlined because they probably regretted not playing at Woodstock, even though they were invited to Woodstock. But the way that concert ended is documented very well in the documentary Give Me Shelter, which came out in 1970 or 1971, I believe. But the Woodstock documentary was fantastic. I remember seeing that in theaters for its 40th anniversary, and it was three hours long, and it goes to show something that Roger Ebert once said, no great movie is ever long, uh, long enough and no bad movie is ever short enough. And the Woodstock documentary, which deservedly won the Academy Award for Best Documentary in 1970, is certainly no exception to that rule. It was not long enough. It was th- I, the, the cut I saw was three hours. I think that might have been the director's cut, but it was incredible how much they told you about Woodstock. But it was actually even amazing what they did not tell you about Woodstock. But anyway... This movie, uh, Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, is a film that I guarantee you I will see, and I will review it for you for next week's show. This I am guaranteeing you, because I'm very excited to see this concert, which was barely uh, mentioned in history books, unlike Woodstock or the Altamont Freedway. So that's a movie I'll see for you, and I will review it for you, on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to be uh, released uh, in theaters, and I believe on streaming as well, is a movie that's called Till Death. And I've seen some advertisements for this because the star of this movie is Megan Fox, an actress who I don't believe should act in any other movies ever again. Not only because she can't act, but also because she doesn't really want to be an actress, despite the fact that she keeps getting hired for films. But Till Death is about a woman who is left handcuffed to her dead husband as part of a sick revenge plot. Unable to unshackle, she has to survive as two killers arrive to finish her off. I do think that a movie, a movie like this has a good plot. It's certainly something that Quentin Tarantino would embrace if he was still doing schlocky horror films. And I think he could make it great. But the director of this movie is S.K. Dale. And I do also think that Quentin Tarantino would not hire Megan Fox. I, I think he has better judgment in actors than that. And all of his movies, whether you like them or you hate them, certainly prove that. Till Death is a movie that I will see, but I doubt I will enjoy it. But either way, I'll let you know what I think. And another movie that's coming out in theaters on the 4th of July weekend, the last one that's subject to be released in theaters, is one that's called Werewolves Within. Now, brace yourself here. It's a feature adaptation of the video game where werewolves attack a small town. Anytime there's a movie that's based on a video game, the movie just doesn't really live up. And it really didn't help that the very first movie based on a video game was the Super Mario Brothers movie, which was a mess. It had some actors in that movie that I really liked, like Bob Hoskins and Dennis Hopper, but not even they could save that train wreck of a movie. 
And before Sonic the Hedgehog came out last year, which I think is the best video game movie because they took a familiar character, made it true to his persona in the video games, and also created a good story with the characters in question. Before that, I think the best video game movie was Resident Evil, but even then, that movie was kind of overblown now that I look back at it. But I did remember enjoying it when I first saw it. But Werewolves Within, I'm not sure if I'm going to see this film. I'm not even sure if it's going to be premiering on any uh, podcasting, excuse me, not podcasting platforms. I'm getting my um, messages mixed up. Uh, on any streaming services. It says it's going to be in theaters, but I'll let you know what I think on next week's show if I see it. So anyway, that just about... Oh, actually, there is one other thing that I should mention. The movie Black Widow, when is it coming out? It's not coming out July 4th weekend. It's coming out July 9th. I do not know why Disney or Marvel Studios would have put the Black Widow movie the weekend after the 4th of July. But it just goes to show you the crazy year that emerged last year. And yeah, it's just going on this year. If I see Black Widow before July 9th, if I am lucky enough to see a preview screening, I'll see it and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.